women were killed in the Birmingham suburb of Erdington and were dumped in what is now known as Pipe Haste Park. The main suspect in both cases was a man named Thornton. The only thing is, the women died 157 years apart. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. For those who listened last week, you know I have sick kids, and I wasn't sure I was going to get anything out this week. I really wanted to get something out because, one, 2020 is my content-creating year. It's what I'm focused on. And the sick kid thing blew up as it moved through the house. It was a very unfortunate domino situation. Even my husband ended up getting sick. I know everyone understands if I skip a week because of family stuff, and I want to thank the people who have actively reached out to check in, to see how things are going, and also to tell me, don't worry if you need a week off. We know family stuff. We know life. We've been there ourselves. Sometimes I do need to step back because I am just so overwhelmed, but then also sometimes I need to focus on the episode, enjoy some normalcy of routine. And getting something out on time is what I need because it means I accomplished something other than sitting on the couch cuddling babies, which I know is important, but it also can be draining in its own way. So I decided that this week I needed the normalcy and to work some extra brain cells. But the problem is I didn't have the time. And if you've listened to Rusty Hinges, the show I write for, just skip this episode because it's pretty much the same episode done over there. The kids being out of school and daycare just meant I couldn't research something totally fresh. I looked through the episodes I've done for Rusty Hinges, and I'll confess I'm plagiarizing myself this week. This is kind of the type of unsolved mystery that we would cover on Insight in the early days. I like these kind of mysteries. It combines true crime with something that just doesn't make sense, this overwhelming coincidence. And so you can tell by the title, this is the Erdington Murders. It takes place in Erdington, which is a suburb of Birmingham in the UK, just a 10-minute drive outside the city. So the first case we're going to talk about takes place in 1817 on Whit Monday. Whit Monday is the day after Pentecost, and in 1817, that fell on May 26th. 20-year-old Mary Ashford lived near Erdington in another small town called Sutton Coalfield. She worked as a servant for her uncle, and he sent her to Birmingham to run some errands for him on May 26th. Like I said, it's a 10-minute drive to Birmingham, but Mary didn't have a car on the account it was 1817, so she would have walked upwards of an hour each way. When she left, she was wearing a pink dress and a straw bonnet, and she carried another bundle with her of nicer clothes. It had a clean dress in it, white stockings, and a white jacket called a Spencer. The reason Mary was carrying that pack was that she was heading to a dance that night with her friend Hannah. So on her way to Birmingham, she dropped her clothes off at Hannah's house so she could come back later and get ready without having to walk all the way home to her uncle's or to her grandfather's to get ready after the errands. 
So Mary dropped off her pack and continued on with her day. She returned to Hannah's around 6 p.m., which is what was expected. They got ready, and sometime between 7 and 8 p.m., they walked to an inn called Tyburn House, which was located about a mile from Erdington. The dance was an annual event held every Whit Monday, and the 1867 report on the case stated that such an event was, quote, as bad a place for an innocent young woman as could well be. So the reason they were saying it was so bad is because there was both dancing and drinking going on. When Hannah and Mary arrived at Tyburn House, Hannah spent maybe 15 minutes downstairs where the dancing and drinking part is going on. It wasn't her scene, so she went upstairs with her sister to the quieter part of the party. But Mary stayed downstairs and danced all night. All night meaning until 11 p.m. Hannah went down to find Mary. They were supposed to walk back together and not be out so late. Hannah found Mary on the dance floor And Mary told her, go on, wait outside for me. I'll be right there. Hannah stood outside waiting on Mary for about 20 minutes. She sent another friend of theirs, Benjamin Carter, back into the dance to get Mary, to tell her, come on, it's time to go. When Mary came out of the party, she had a 24-year-old man named Abraham Thornton with her. Mary didn't know Abraham well, but she was familiar with him. He was a bricklayer. He was short, stocky kind of guy. Mary and Abraham walked ahead while Benjamin hung back to walk with Hannah. But before they got all the way to Hannah's house, Benjamin said goodnight and he went back to the party. As Hannah got closer to her house, she realized that she could no longer see Mary or Abraham ahead of her anymore. Mary was probably going to spend the night with Hannah. She had made a comment that maybe she would just go on home to her grandfather's house, since it was closer to her uncle's house where she was supposed to work the next day. So Hannah just assumed Mary decided to go to her grandfather's instead and had turned off to go that way, and she just hadn't seen her do it. So Hannah herself went home and went to bed. She would have gotten home around midnight. The exact time of the next events really relies on multiple witnesses, so the times could be off by quite a bit, as I'm not really sure how many people were watching their clocks in the dead of night. Around 2.45 a.m., someone walked past Abraham and Mary and said good morning to them, though this someone could not be 100% sure the woman was Mary, because the woman had her head down, which let her hat cover her face a bit. This wouldn't be that surprising to be Mary. She was a young woman. She was out with a young man at 2.45 in the morning. It would have been a little bit scandalous. At 3.30 in the morning, someone else passed by and saw Mary walking by herself near Hannah's home. Minutes after this, Mary knocked on Hannah's front door, waking her up. She told Hannah she had gone to her grandfather's house to sleep and she was just there to change out of her party clothes and into the old dress that she had left behind the night before so she could then go to work at her uncle's house. And this was a little white lie because Mary did not go to her grandfather's house and she did not sleep. She had been out with Abraham the whole time. 
Mary stayed at Hannah's house for about 15 minutes before leaving again. And this is in line with what another witness saw. Someone reported seeing Mary leave Hannah's home and head down the road toward her uncle's house. And Mary was alone at this point. We have no more sightings of Mary alive. Around 5 a.m., a day laborer named George Jackson left his own home in Birmingham on foot for a workhouse in Erdington. He turned down a footpath that ran alongside a watery pit that had flooded up. The slope leading down into the pit is where he saw a bonnet, a pair of shoes, and a bundle of clothing. One of the shoes appeared to have blood on it. Worried that someone had been hurt in the area, he ran over to the nearby mill to get assistance, and the men from the mill grabbed eel rakes and used it to search the watery pit to see if someone had fallen in there, and they were able to find Mary Ashford's body there. Going to the pit from the direction of Erdington, reportedly there were two sets of footprints appearing to be those of a man and a woman. The footsteps were close together, leading the police to believe that they were running. Near the pit, the footprints seemed to go back and forth as though there was a chase, a little bit of a struggle. And then there was a set of men's footprints leading across the ground to the gate at the far corner of the field. The prints stop here because on the other side of the gate, was a clover patch that wouldn't preserve the prints well. There's a huge issue with this reading of the crime scene and all the footprints is because we know a whole bunch of men were there. They all grabbed eel rakes and went over there. We know looky-loos started showing up before the prints around the area were quote-unquote read by investigators. So this could be a little bit of interpretation, a little bit of storytelling in the reporting of this crime. Another part of the story that doesn't necessarily ring true is that there was blood at the scene, lots of it, as far away as 40 yards from the pit and as close as 14 yards. So this would say that there was a chase, an attack away from the pit, and then Mary was thrown in. But it later came out that aside from two small cuts and a few very vague bruises, Mary was uninjured. So here's what's interesting here. Five hours after Mary's body was found, Abraham Thornton was arrested for murder. He became the prime suspect immediately when they found out that he's the last person seen with Mary. Except he really wasn't. Hannah saw her, so Hannah was the last person with her, And then she was seen leaving Hannah's house alone. So Mary was last seen without anyone around. But Abraham was arrested anyway. He did admit he was at the dance with her. He admitted he walked around with her overnight. He even admitted that while they were out together, they had consensual sex. He said he walked her almost to Hannah's house. She was going to go grab her stuff and then go home. He waited outside for a few minutes, planning to walk her all the way home. But he only waited a few minutes when we know she was in there for a good 15, 20 minutes. So when she didn't come out, he had just headed home. 
Abraham told police that, except for changing his coat at home around 5 a.m., he was wearing the same clothes that he had worn to the dance. So the police inspected them, and they found a little bit of blood on his underclothes. His shoes were damp, but they weren't wet-wet, like he fell in a watery pit as he threw someone's body in there. They were just damp, and he said he was walking around with Mary, so you're walking around in the grass all night and early morning. They're going to get damp. The evidence against Abraham really was thin. There were reports that his shoe prints matched what was seen at the pit, but everyone in the area used the same shoemaker. So everyone with his foot size would have left similar prints. It's not like there's a distinct tread on these like we see with limited edition sneakers or something. These were very generic. And on top of that, when they took his shoes to compare to what was left at the scene, it had already rained. So it made it difficult to even see the prints, let alone match them. In spite of the weak case, Abraham was put on trial and the public was against him. The prosecution's theory was that Abraham tried to make a move on Mary. She, being very virtuous, turned him down. And so he waited for her to pass by on her way home where he grabbed her. He then raped her and threw her into the pit where she drowned. Because no one had heard any screams, even though there were two houses nearby, the prosecution speculated that Mary had fainted in the process of the attack because it was too much for her to handle. The defense managed to get the Crown's witnesses to pretty consistently step back from their direct testimony, like the medical examiner. On direct, he testified Mary was raped, but on cross, he admitted that he couldn't tell if she was raped or had consensual sex based on the evidence. That's pretty much how the trial went, but the main part of the defense was his alibi. Mary was last seen alive and alone between 4 and 4.15, At 4.30, Abraham was seen strolling, calmly, by a farm. He was alone at this point. Five minutes later, he was seen at a local mill. Mary's body was found less than 30 minutes after that. So to have grabbed Mary, assaulted her, murdered her, and dumped her in the pit, and then got to the mill with this timeline... It's estimated Abraham would have been running at 15 miles an hour. In other words, that's a four-minute mile, but he was actually seen walking very calmly. When the judge gave instructions to the jury, he told them that the prosecution's case was not compelling, and they acquitted Abraham in six minutes. They didn't even leave the jury box for their deliberations. They talked it over while still sitting there. But that is not the end of the story because British law was a little bit quirky in the 19th century. Abraham was the O.J. Simpson of their time, someone that the public really thought did it, but he got away with it. A witness came forward claiming that Abraham saw Mary at the dance and said that he had slept with Mary's sister several times before. He was going to have sex with Mary, too, or she would, quote, die for it. And a lot of people believe this witness. They believe that Abraham planned to kill Mary if she turned him down. 
So people donated money for Mary's brother, William, to hire an attorney who found a very old and rarely used law that allowed heirs to appeal an acquittal in a case such as this. And that's what William did. He appealed the acquittal. On October 1st, 1817, Abraham was rearrested. Abraham decided that he was going to pull out his own archaic law. And in court on November 17th, Abraham was asked if he was guilty or not guilty. He said, not guilty, and I am ready to defend the same with my body. His attorney then handed him a pair of gauntlets. He put one on and he threw the other down. Abraham had decided on a trial by combat. And I am not kidding. Basically, a trial by battle, a trial by combat meant that Abraham and William would literally fight. And whoever won the fight won the case. If Abraham lost the battle, he would be found guilty and would be immediately sentenced to death. It was up to William to pick up the gauntlet that had been thrown down for the trial to continue. Abraham was a bricklayer, he was very strong, and William was not interested in that battle. He argued that this trial by combat should not be allowed. For one, the law was archaic, and two, under this law, the battle option was only on the table in the event of a weak case against the accused. William said the evidence against Abraham was overwhelming. After a bunch of back and forth between the sides, some hearings, the court eventually ruled that there was not overwhelming evidence against Abraham, so the battle could go forward. The judge said he did not like this idea, but it was the law, so he had no choice but to grant this trial by battle if the defendant requested it. Abraham was in jail this whole time that the back and forth was going on, but when the ruling came in, William Ashford had two options, pick up the gauntlet and fight or consent to Abraham being released from jail. In April 1818, after being locked up for six months, Abraham was released. This case spurred England into literally changing their laws. A year later, England removed both the private appeal that William Ashford had used and the trial by battle. Neither are currently on the code books. Abraham Thornton, after his release, moved to the United States to pursue a fresh start since everyone thought he was guilty of killing someone back home. Mary's murder was never solved, and many don't believe it even was a murder. It's possible that Mary fell into the watery pit after a night of drinking. There is a theory proposed in the 1867 report on the case, and it's that Mary had sobered up and was racked with guilt over the drinking and having premarital sex and decided to take her own life. But Mary did not seem despondent or sad or upset when she was at her friend's house shortly before her death. So this would have been a very quick change, so I'm not sure it's very plausible. The theory that has prevailed through the years is that this was a murder, and this killing became a moral story for the community. It was a warning to other young women who might be tempted to go out to drink at the dance hall. Two 
melodramas were written about Mary Ashford's death, basically telling young women, look what happens if you engage in this type of behavior. So let's leave Mary's case and fast forward 157 years to 1974 and the murder of Barbara Forrest. Barbara was 20 years old, like Mary Ashford, and she was also from the Burbington area, also like Mary. Barbara attended St. Mark's Lutheran Church and was dating Simon Belcher, a pastor's son. On Sunday, May 26, 1974, after church services, Simon and Barbara had a date. So they went out and, like Mary Ashford, they went out dancing before heading home sometime after midnight on Monday, May 27th. Simon walked Barbara to the bus stop around 1 a.m. where she intended to take a bus home. But Barbara never made it there, and she was reported missing the next morning. Eight days later, on June 4th, her body was found in a ditch in Erdington. She was less than 500 yards from her home. She was even closer to her workplace, the Pipe Hayes Children's Home, where she worked as a social worker. Barbara had been raped and strangled. The investigation into Barbara's murder was extensive. They interviewed bus passengers, but none of them reported having seen Barbara on the bus. They then staged a reconstruction and put up hundreds of flyers asking the public for information. Because no one saw Barbara on the bus, two theories emerged. The first theory is that someone who knew Barbara saw her waiting at the bus stop and offered her a ride home. The second is that Barbara did get on the bus. People just didn't notice. Then when she got off at the Tyburn bus stop and tried to walk home, she was attacked there. Eventually, the police came to suspect a man named Michael Thornton. Here's the millionth coincidence, obviously. The prime suspect of Mary Ashford's case was Abraham Thornton, and here we are with a Michael Thornton emerging as the lead suspect. Michael lived near where Barbara was found, and he was also a co-worker of hers. He provided an alibi, but it turned out to be a lie. His pants, though they had already been dry-cleaned, had small spots of what looked like blood on them. Again, like blood found on Abraham. Michael Thornton was arrested in September 1974, four months after the murder. And the evidence against Michael was like the evidence against Abraham. Very, 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 very circumstantial. In March 1975, after a seven-day trial, the judge told the jury there's not enough evidence to convict. So Michael Thornton was acquitted. While Barbara's family did not have the right to a private appeal like Mary Ashford's family did, they did have one last play many years later called DNA. 38 years after Barbara's murder, her sister Erica publicly questioned why Barbara's case hadn't been reviewed by a cold case investigator and had additional forensic tests run. While the police would not comment specifically on anything, They did say there was no more forensic avenues to pursue in the case, which Erica found baffling. It didn't make sense that there wasn't evidence because there was. 
What she's worried about is that it got lost in the intervening years. So like Mary Ashford's case, Barbara's case remains unsolved. So here we have two young women, both 20 years old. Both were murdered on their way home on May 27th after a night out dancing. They were both killed and dumped in the same area in Erdington, known today as Pipe Hayes Park. Mary had spent the night dancing at an inn known as the Tyburn House, and Barbara's bus stop, where she was supposed to get off, was on Tyburn Road. The prime suspect in both cases were men with the last name Thornton. In both cases, blood was found on the suspect's clothing, and in both cases, the men were acquitted. Not only that, they were acquitted after the judge instructed the jury that the case was too weak. And Barbara and Mary both had siblings who, after the acquittals, publicly tried to get their cases resolved. So there's the phrase, there's no such thing as a coincidence. People say all the time, I don't believe in coincidences. But either there are coincidences, even startling ones like these, or there's something else at play here. There are theories out there that the universe just keeps doubling back and history repeats, in this case, quite literally. Or we have alternative timelines, reincarnation, other things we can't quite explain, but could explain this. There are also pieces of added lore to these stories that make it seem even more coincidental. There's one that keeps getting repeated that the two victims shared a birthday, which they did not. I had to do a little bit of digging, but I have learned they did not share a birthday. There's one that they both had premonitions that something bad was going to happen and expressed that to a friend. I also cannot find evidence of that. In the archives or in the reporting at the time of either of these events, it sounds to me like this was added in. It's been reported that it was Whit Monday, the year each woman was killed. It was not. They were killed on the same day, but in Barbara's case, she was killed early Monday morning. Mary's case, it was early Tuesday morning. It wasn't even the same day of the week. Whit Monday in Barbara's case was not for another week after this. When I initially started researching this one, it sounded like it was, I don't know, too good to be true as far as weird coincidence cases go, that there's no way this many coincidences have happened. And yes, some have come into the lore, but I have seen myself a number of them by comparing the reporting of what happened in each case. Honestly, I think this is a coincidence, a terribly sad and tragic coincidence. I like thinking about these things because I like thinking about paranormal or other explanations or things we can't explain. I like thinking about those things. But in the end, this sounds like two young women who were killed brutally, far too young, two families who had to struggle with this, had to struggle with the lack of justice. I'm sure Barbara's family doesn't feel as interested over this as anyone else does. They haven't seen justice for Barbara and they don't feel the police are doing enough. I mean, when we come down to the bottom line, that's what this is about, no matter how interesting these coincidences are. But I do want to know what you guys think. Reach out to me, social media, email, whatever. Let me know what you think about coincidences. Do you think this is just a coincidence? Do you think there is something to this idea that history is going to quite literally repeat itself in weird ways like this? Let me know what you think and 
next week I will have a full-length episode because I am willing everyone in my house to be healthy. Thank you for listening to Crime Lines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crime Lines Podcast, Twitter at Crime Lines Pod, and Instagram at Crime Lines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at Charlie KC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 